Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament week 37, where we kick off our study of Isaiah. And I know you have mixed feelings probably, so what did I? But I gotta tell you, after this week of praying and studying my guts out, I can't wait to teach you these 12 chapters. There are so many little bits of beauty you're just going to be overwhelmed by them. Hopefully I have time to get to all of them. You can go into the history about Isaiah at the beginning of the notes. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in in that here, um, but you can find out a whole bunch in the notes. He's basically a prophet who was a prophet to northern and southern Israel for four different kings. So for a long period of time, he's not a prophet in the wilderness. He's a prophet who's kind of at court and often has the king's ear, but the kings don't necessarily listen to him. Some do, some don't, and we're going to hear about a lot of those today. The best visual I can give you for what the book of Isaiah is all about, at least this, these 12 chapters, we have this road between my house and Jason's parents' house. They live in Midway. We live in Draper. And there's this canyon road that's only open some of the year. And my kids call it the nature way because it's not paved and it's kind of windy and they tend to get sick at it. But it's just this beautiful mountain pass to get from one side of the mountain to the other. And on part of this canyon road, there is this big stretch of forest that is completely burned. And I wondered if there was some natural disaster that had happened and found out later that it was actually a controlled burn, that the, they intended that burn to happen so that new growth could come up. That's how I read Isaiah, especially these 12 chapters. It is all about how there will be a destruction that is coming to the children of Israel because of their choices, because they've abandoned God there will be this burning that occurs. Isaiah is there to warn them that it's happening so that those who can hear him and can decipher his words can get out. And those who choose to stay will experience the burning. But the beautiful part of Isaiah is he speaks like a parent. His whole purpose is to teach about the new growth that is coming. So even though there will be this burning, the same way that forest that I drive through looks awful right now, in a few years, new growth will shoot up because they've taken out all the brush and all the extra, and now there's space and nourishment in the soil so that new growth can come. So much of what Isaiah teaches is about the Savior who will come, who will restore, who will bring light and life and new growth. He also talks about the restoration phase where the restoration of the gospel will happen. This second time around, we'll hear the gospel in its fullness. We'll have a chance for new growth. And then, of course, the millennial reign of the Savior, where we'll see all of that kind of come to fruition. So you want to keep that visual in your mind, that that's Isaiah's purpose. His job is to warn the people about the burning and also to promise about the new growth that is coming down the road. One of the biggest endorsements you'll get for the book of Isaiah comes from the Savior himself when he says, great are the words of Isaiah. Nephi is another one who I love. In fact, I love the way Nephi talks about Isaiah. If you go in Second Nephi, you can see a bunch of them. I give you the references in the notes, but he saw the Savior. And he, I imagine, had a really hard time describing what that experience was like. And I wonder if, because Isaiah saw the Savior, and he was only a hundred years apart from Nephi, they bonded. <laughs> Nephi loved his words, I think, because Nephi understood how hard it is to describe something so divine with such limited mortal words. <laughs> and I just think he must have marveled at Isaiah's artistry in it. So watch for that. He does mention that it's hard to understand. But the other thing that Nephi talks about, this is in 11.8, he talks about how in the latter days, we'll have a better understanding of Isaiah than many others. Most of that, I think, comes from the fact that the Book of Mormon will have come forth and the Doctrine and Covenants and the priesthood keys. 
But I also think a big piece of it comes from the fact that we have lots of scholars who have studied it. We have lots of books you can buy, things you can study. You can go on Google Earth and figure out what the land of Israel looks like, and all those tools are at your disposal. But I would tell you that the biggest two tools that helped me this week to study Isaiah is one, to look for Jesus Christ. Seek Him out in every chapter. What am I learning about the Savior? Not just that He lives, but that He loves me. Watch for that in everything, every single chapter. The second thing I would tell you is to watch for your stewardship. If you are going into this week's study with questions about the things you are in control over, my own family, my own callings, my ministry, all those things, if I'm thinking and praying and questioning those things, and then I open Isaiah, spiritual promptings come. It was harder for me to try and be a scholar in a wide sense if I just narrowed down to, Heavenly Father, how's this going to help my family? What does this do for me? Then promptings came. So keep those two things in mind. Open up your scriptures, open up the notes, get rid of any apprehension you have, because I'm telling you, I got you. This is going to be a good week. All right, let's get started. Isaiah 1 is sort of an introduction and an overview to the entire book. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that it's sort of like Doctrine and Covenants 1 that may have even been written much later and then was added as like a preface or a summary of what you're going to see. I'm not sure which of those are true, but I do feel like there's just this overarching theme of, let me tell you the damage that I see. The Lord is coming like a physician to the children of Israel, and He's talking about the incredible damage that He can see that they can't see. What it reminded me of, and this is going to be me oversharing, uh, when I was a younger mom, I went for about 10 years without going to the dentist. <laughs> I don't have a really good excuse for this other than the fact that I was embarrassed. I don't know how to... <laughs> so I knew things were not doing great in my mouth, but I was so busy with six kids and we had all kinds of troubles and we moved a lot and I just didn't make time for it. And then by the time I knew I needed to go, I was so embarrassed that I was that mom that like took her kids to the dentist but never went herself. <laughs> And so by the time I actually went, I was like, I had a, okay, I'm just going to tell you, I had a tooth break in half uh, in the back of my mouth. And I had, to, so then I was like, okay, I have to go in. There's no choice. So I went in and I, on the form that you fill out in the lobby, wrote down how embarrassed I was. And the dentist who came to talk to me was so kind. He had to explain to me all the damage that was there. We did the x-rays, we did the whole thing. And he sort of laid out for me, okay, Maria, here's what I see. Here's the things we need to take care of. And here's the plan. And that's sort of what I see with chapter one. The Lord is coming to a people who have forgotten him and they're breaking down. And he's trying to say, let me show you how far gone you really are. So he pleads with them to hear. The way he pleads with them is because he speaks through his prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah hears he is inviting everyone to hear. In fact, if you look in verse 2, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. This great physician has seen the damage, and he's, he's giving counsel, and they need to hear it. And then he talks about how he's nourished them. I love that line in 2. He talks about nourishing. It reminds me of what you read in Jacob 5 about the vineyard and how he nourished it all the time. He's been nourishing this children of Israel group for generations, and they've turned against him. In fact, in, at the end of two, they have rebelled against me. Uh, and when you go down into four, you see that it's beyond not just listening anymore. Now they're starting to go backwards. So not only are they not progressing on the covenant path, they're receding along it. And 
we are divinely programmed to progress. Our joy comes from progress. I think that's why the children and youth program puts so much emphasis on goals and making steady progress because that's where joy comes from and they're suffering because they're receding. Another thing you'll see is his initial diagnosis. So in five and six, he asks, why will you be stricken anymore? I wonder if they are like me right before the tooth broke, <laughs> where, where they just don't see the damage and they don't even want to think about it and they don't want to look at it. And he's saying, there is so much damage. In fact, if you look at six, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness. You're completely decaying. The wounds, the bruises, the putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up. To a God who loves to heal and to bind up wounds, this must have been an incredibly hard thing to see, that his children are suffering and he has the treatment and they won't accept it. But that's Isaiah's job, is to remind them of where they can find healing. It's interesting because when you go a little further, you see that they're still going through the motions of being a righteous people. So from like 11 to 15, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? They're still making sacrifices. They still have some semblance of a temple, although it's become distorted. And he's asking, why? I, you know, like it's, it's essentially like taking your kids and saying, we don't watch TV on Sundays, but then not doing anything good in its place. <laughs> we probably all had those Sundays where he's basically saying, why do you make these sacrifices if, if none of your heart is in it? I loved this concept, especially if you read it alongside Elder Uchtdorf's talk from conference, where he talked about sacrifice and consecration. Both are good. Both are holy. Sacrifice is good, but only if you fill up your time with something worthwhile. You consecrate your time towards something good. So if you look in the advice he gets from Isaiah, it's similar, where he says in 15, basically they're making sacrifices and their hands are full of blood because the sacrifices aren't holy. There, there's no heart behind it. So he gives them advice. 16, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before your eyes. Cease to do evil. That's the sacrifice. The consecration comes in 17. Learn to do well. It's not enough to just stop doing bad things. Do good, as much good as you can. Seek judgment. Get correction from me so that we can fix this. Learn to do well. The same way the dentist doesn't just leave me and take out all the cavities, he fills them up and he gives me advice on how to not go another decade without seeing him. That's what happens here. And then I love 18. Come now and let us reason together. I've always read that as like a beckoning of like, come now and let us reason. I honestly read it this time and it was like an exclamation point was after the now. It was come now, now fix this. The same way when the dentist finally did talk to me, it was no, you need to fix this tomorrow. We're scheduling an appointment tomorrow. <laughs> it's time to get the ball rolling. And that's what I think he's pleading with us to do as well. There's no time to delay. There's no time to wait before we get back into scripture study, before we get back to the temple. Come now. And if you come now, right when that prompting hits, the promises are powerful. Though the skin, sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Remember, their hands were covered with this red blood, this sacrifice that meant nothing. And he's saying, I promise I can make those sacrifices worth it if you will consecrate to me, if you will seek to do good. And that's what he's asking them to do. The big crux of it is in 19. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat of the good of the land. Even though they've fallen so far off this path, he is inviting them to return. If you're just willing and you're just obedient, the same way when I, had, I just had to show up for every appointment, I had to swallow my pride and I just had to get back on track. That's the promise. If I just 
follow through. He'll do the bulk of the work and things can be cleaned again. So you'll see all of that in that chapter and it's so powerful. When you go a little bit further, you're going to see some guidance about the cycle of apostasy. I'm not going to go into it here, but it is in the notes if you want to learn a little bit more. But he talks about the sins that are happening, the cleansing that will inevitably need to occur, and then the restoration and the judgment. It, it applies to Isaiah's day. It applies to the restoration time. It applies to the latter days. Lots of fulfillments on that one. But that'll take you to the end of chapter one. Isaiah chapter two is where Nephi's writings kick off. So we don't have chapter one in second Nephi, but starting at chapter two and then all the way to 12, you have all of this almost word for word in the Book of Mormon. So th that means I'm going to focus a lot in these chapters, but I love the way he compares Zion and the temple to being in the tops of mountains. I love it because I'm a hiker. <laughs> and so in two and three, you're going to see this invitation for people to come and enjoy this ascent up the mountain. So two says that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. There's lots of cool Latter-day application for people seeing the temple in, in you know, the Rocky Mountains as, as an application of this. But I love what you also see in three. It says, and many people shall go and shall say, come ye and let us go to the mountain of the Lord. I love this because this is what I do. All the time. So I'll try a new hike. I'll test something new. And then the first thing I want to do is bring somebody else the next time because I'm like, you guys, it's great. The views are so beautiful. And what you have to explain to people who are not really hikers is that they're going to see something gorgeous, but they're going to come back. And it's not so much about getting to a great destination. It's about what happens to you in the process of going on this hike. I get sweaty. I get tired. Whoever I've been fighting with in my family that morning, I tend to forget about. Like I can just... I go up and down the mountain, but I don't come back the same. And I think that's the same intent with the temple. We are supposed to go there to partake of the goodness of God and then go out and then share that goodness with as many people as we can in as many ways as we can. It's kind of like what we're going to read about in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel when we read about the river that comes out of the temple and nourishes all the land. That's what he's asking us to do. When I read verse three, I think of President Nelson's talk about positive spiritual momentum. It's just like, it's not enough to do it for yourself. You've got to link arms with your family and your friends and be like, let's go. We're going to go learn in the house of the Lord. I also love the millennial, millennial promise in four. This is where you see that they're going to take swords and they're going to turn them into plowshares. They're going to take spears and turn them into pruning hooks. And for some reason, this time when I read it, I thought about the New Testament, how the Savior takes fishermen and he, he takes all those skills they've developed and he turns them into fishers of men. And I imagine there were a lot of the talents they developed and the core attributes that actually helped them be good fishers of men. So I think millennially, a lot of the mortal skills that we are learning right now will bless us then. He'll just take those occupations that we have and he'll turn our spears into pruning hook. He'll find a way to take whatever your talents are and whatever your education is and turn it into a tool for gathering and teaching. And I can't wait to see what he comes up with. Uh, I also love what you find in five. So this is when he says, Oh, house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. The light of the Lord is a brilliant, radiant force. And if you're living righteously, it is a warm glow. <laughs> if you are off, it's hard at first. It's kind of like if you've stepped out of a movie theater and out into the parking lot and you're kind of jarred. Um, it's that same feel. It's what I felt when I walked into the dentist's office that day. All of a sudden, all of my weaknesses were exposed and I was embarrassed and it was hard. And that's what the light of the Lord feels like sometimes. What I love is in the middle of this phrase is let us walk in the light of the Lord. That means 
somebody's linking my arm and they know this is going to be hard. All of a sudden, you're going to see every weakness and vulnerability and it's going to be hard. But let us walk together. I promise it's worth it. By the end, you will want to be in the light of the Lord. But I think it helps me as a parent because sometimes as I'm inviting my kids to come closer to Jesus Christ, it it makes them feel vulnerable and exposed. <laughs> that light is is hard sometimes. That's why I think we have to do it together. So I love that it says, let us go. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Okay, flip the page. There's even more. When you go into six or nine-ish, that's when he's advising them to drop magic. This is where he starts talking a little bit about pride and how they have to humble themselves. For me, I see these two pages of scripture as kind of linked together. So on, in the Isaiah 2 frame, he's giving warnings about pride and he's talking about all the things that generally males rely in. So he talks about warfare, he talks about towers and ships and things that men build in order to feel secure. Again, this is men in Isaiah's day. What are things they would build to make them feel secure, especially if they've lost a connection to the Lord? And then he invites them in 22, cease ye from man. This is drop the natural man. All of these fortifications that you're building will crumble like they're going to battle the Assyrians and literally all of these things will crumble. So Isaiah is trying to warn them that it's coming. Three is when you see, I think, the female equivalent of that. So when you jump into three, he's talking a little bit about how they're going to scramble around and have wounds that can't be healed because they've learned to rely on sources that can't actually help them. So you'll see that around verse seven. Um, he talks about their countenance being fallen in nine and then their lack of charity. This is where it kind of shifted for me. So if you look around 12, their leaders have stopped helping them. In fact, they're destroying the paths that they used to walk on. And 15 is where you see their lack of charity hit. What mean ye that ye beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor, saith the Lord God of hosts. 16, moreover, the Lord saith, because of the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. This to me is approaching the female side of pride. We each have different strengths and weaknesses, both genders. So I feel like you get both. And it's not like this is exclusively something that women deal with any more than ships and fortifications or something exclusively men deal with. But I did like the comparison of the two. He talks about when you start to rely on these things being the source of your confidence, whatever I can put on, whatever I can look like, I become weaker. I really feel like the two verses are tied together. That their lack of charity actually led them to become more self-focused. They started to think about their own worth that was on the outside and stopped focusing on others. And what happens is they lose their bravery. So if you see in 18, in that day, the Lord will take away their bravery. He's going to strip them of all these things that will make them think things are fine. Uh, he's going to take all those things away until they realize how little substance they have left. It's the contrast of the two that I thought was really interesting. If you look, if you've ever watched like the Hunger Games movie, so it, they they show the capital that has this opulence and excess and fancy jewelry and fancy makeup, and then they show all the different districts, you know, that are poor and living like it looks depression era almost. And it's the contrast that's so glaring. And I think that's what's offending God in this chapter as well. That. There, there is a mighty contrast in the land of Israel. They've forgotten the poor. They're not caring for the widow or the fatherless. And they're putting all their effort into this shell that can't last. And eventually, by the end of chapter 3, you see that they become desolate. This is a prophecy that will happen in Isaiah's time and in the latter times that 
all those things that we've built up to try and build our bravery on will disintegrate before our eyes. And by the end, you'll sit on the ground desolate. In chapters four and five of Isaiah, the tone shifts a little bit. If you picture Isaiah following that metaphor of the controlled burn, if Isaiah is basically like the forest ranger who comes out and says, hey, we're doing a controlled burn in this area, please get everything out. And you know, this is the day it's going to happen. Trust me, it's coming. Those who listened escaped. They, they leave the area. And that's what you see in verse two, that there are some who will escape. Again, this is talking mostly about the millennial day, but I think there's lots of applications. Uh, and then he talks about the peace that they find if they did escape. If they left all of that wickedness and chose to turn to the Lord, they'll be washed. So if you see that those in Zion who are left in Zion in four, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. There's this that burning phase happened and he acknowledges that it happened, but all those who escaped get this beautiful blessing. So in five, and the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies, a cloud of smoke by day and a, and a shining of flaming fire by night for all the glory can be a defense. I love this visual. After what we studied with Moses and the children of Israel, this cloud of covering that represents the Lord's presence is promised to be over every dwelling. The reason I thought this was so powerful is when you layer it on top of what President Nelson taught us about our role specifically as parents and mothers in Israel is to create these places of refuge. If you go in the notes, you can read his bigger quote, but he invites us to create these places of refuge and that if we create it, then this protective cloud can come. Those are not his words. That's me kind of layering other things on top of it. But he does promise protection. He promises in times of trouble, you will have a place of peace and refuge for your family. I think sometimes we flip this. We tend to think, okay, when the Lord comes again, I'm going to have a place where I can build a safe place for my family. And what the scriptures are teaching and what Isaiah was trying to teach us is, no, no, you build that dwelling. You get out of the place where the fire is coming. You live a different way and you build your home the best you can and he will come and seal it, protect it and give it this gauzy cloud of peace. That's the promise. You'll have a place of refuge. That's what you see at the end in verse six. When you go a little further into five, you see a parable of sorts. It, it, again, it's kind of like Jacob five in Zenus's allegory of the olive tree that's in the book of Mormon. He talks about a friend who's coming to a very fruitful hill. That, that part I think is important. So highlight that in verse one. This is land that should produce beautifully. Um, and the vineyard keeper decides to do a whole bunch of things to prepare to plant. So he puts, he takes all the stones out. He builds hedges. He builds a tower. He builds a wine press so that everybody is clear on what's the goal of this vineyard. It's not just going to be a pretty Napa Valley wedding spot. It's going to be a place that produces exquisite wine. And everybody's supposed to know that. And then something strange happens. Despite all his effort and all his work, it produces wild grapes. That's what you see in four. Wild grapes means bitter grapes. They can't be used for wine. And then, just like we saw in Jacob 5, the vineyard keeper says, what could I have done more? <laughs> he, he did everything he could to help. It reminded me, I guess maybe it made me grateful, because I feel like before the Lord planted me in this stewardship, this incredibly good stewardship where He planted me, He prepared a hundred things, probably an infinite number of things. He removed stones, He built hedges, He built a tower so that I'd have access to help. He, he gave me all these things that I probably will never appreciate the fullness of. 
And if I choose to become bitter, if I choose to turn away from that, then slowly he starts to take those things away. So that's what you're going to see starting around verse 5. He says, I, I guess I can't make what I hoped to make of you, so I'm going to start to remove all those things I built. I think it's really interesting that he doesn't just like torch the vineyard. <laughs> he doesn't do anything really dramatic here. He just takes away his fortifications. And because of the natural man's state of this vineyard, vines grow, weeds grow, thistles grow, and everything gets overwhelmed. This is a metaphor for Israel, but it's totally a metaphor for our lives. When we turn against the commandments, he will remove those from us. We're not compelled to keep any commandments. We just get to choose it. And if we don't choose it, then those are slowly pulled away and we get the resulting fruit. That's what we'll find. So his pleasant plant, as he phrases it in verse 7, becomes this suffocated, sad residue. Remember, this is Isaiah, though, so he's never going to end there. He's going to say, but that plant has seeds, and that can still thrive again. It just didn't thrive this time. This is the children of Israel we're talking about. He talks about in 9 and 10 that this, it's a production. It's an analogy that talks about how much yield they're getting out of this crop. And not only did it not produce the amount of fruit that the vineyard keeper was hoping it would, but it also kind of goes backwards. It consumes the fruit that it should have produced and it nothing comes out of it. This, I think, applies to us a lot in our day because I felt like this in the New Testament. <laughs> I got to be completely honest. When Come Follow Me started in 2019, I was not fully on board. I just, I'll tell you about the whole story some other time, but uh, I didn't do a great job, to be honest. Um, and I feel like I reaped the rewards of that. My family didn't feel connected to the scriptures. I didn't feel connection to the scriptures. I didn't put much in. So I certainly didn't get a whole lot out. In 2020, when I shifted and started really caring about Come Follow Me, all of a sudden my vineyard changed. It, it was all about what I did differently and how my family supported it that, that made things change. So look around your vineyards and see where there is a, a lack of fruit and see what you can do differently. It was powerful for me as I was thinking about that. Another thing you'll see when you go a little further is that why it's not productive. So if you go in 12, they regard not the work of the Lord. 13, they end up in captivity because they have no knowledge. So much of his words have been focused on building knowledge, and now it's lacking, and of course, they're withering because of it. When you flip the page, there's a little bit more. It talks about these cords of iniquity. I think what he's trying to say is that those in Israel are sort of pretending to cut ties with their sin, but sort of dragging them along behind them. <laughs> you know, it's like if you've ever had one of those newlywed or those new parents who they don't want to take away the kid's whole blanket so they cut up a little piece of it and let the kid carry that in their pocket forever it's that kind of idea um and he, what's interesting is they start to think that they're going to have the blessings anyway so in 19 they say let him make speed and hasten his work that we might see it they fully believed because of the davidic covenant the promise that somebody from the line of david would always be on the throne that they didn't really have to worry or even really live righteously because there's this promise out there um but he says then very powerful words in 20 and 21, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. This is an incredible, powerful message for all of us. We all fall into this trap. I think especially in our day today, there are many people who are calling evil good and who are deeply offended that anyone even pretends that there is evil. And I think every one of our 
apostles and prophets who are speaking today are inviting us to stand for something, to stand up for what you believe, to do it kindly, to do it, you know, with compassion, but to stand boldly. And I think you get that from Isaiah too. The other one I love is in verse 24. This is when he talks about the root. So he he basically talks about a plant that looks healthy on the top. And then when you pull up the root, it's molded and decaying underneath. It reminds me of when I go to chop an onion or a piece of garlic and I find that it's been sitting there too long and it's got a whole like root that's rotten or an apple. If you've ever cut into an apple and it's got a big bruise inside, that's the same kind of feel. What will happen because of that rottenness that's inside is he will lift up an enzyme to the nations. This enzyme that we're talking about here is more about the Assyrians that will come, that will like take over the land and destroy things. But there will be another enzyme that we'll talk about in a couple chapters that's more about the latter days. So we'll head that direction next. Isaiah, like so many others in the Old Testament that we've studied, is a type of Christ. And that shines out boldly in Isaiah 6. So this is where you find out about Isaiah's call. Again, since we don't think that things in Isaiah necessarily go in chronological order, I don't know if this call came earlier or later. You know, because of the reference to the king, that this is probably earlier in Isaiah's ministry that he receives this call. He sees the Lord, and he seems almost shocked that he sees the Lord, (laughs) because his response is, Oh no. Uh, In one, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. So he's having a vision of the Lord. And then five, he starts to see his own weakness, his own sin, and he is a little bit afraid, or maybe a lot afraid. And I think there's powerful teaching in this. I think oftentimes when we come closer to God, we are more aware of our weaknesses. Sometimes that can be a bit daunting because you would think the closer I come to God, the more at peace I would feel. And I think That's not the Lord's way. We learned this in Proverbs. He is here to coach us and correct us. So that means the closer you come to him, the more correction you're going to get so that he can refine you. And that's what's happening to Isaiah. He he feels like, just like Nephi did in the Book of Mormon, where he felt like he had these sins and he was struggling and he wishes he didn't have them. Isaiah comes to the Lord and there's this beautiful scene with an angel who takes a coal, touches it to his lips and and heals him. He takes away the sins of the past. In fact, it says in verse 7, Thine iniquity is taken away, thy sin purged. In addition to taking away what didn't belong, Isaiah also is blessed with the ability to do something. Remember, it's sacrifice and consecration. So that purging allows him to have this mouth that can speak with the tongue of angels almost. He he is someone whose words carry through the centuries and will be quoted by everybody in Scripture. That comes with this prophetic gift, this calling. So you see him volunteer. This is where he sounds much like Christ. In verse 8, I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then said I, here am I, send me. It's this invitation to step forward. Uh, There's a great BYU devotional that kind of references this, and he talks about how all of us will have lots of opportunities in our life to basically do this that maybe we even did this before we came into mortality. We took this opportunity to say, okay, put me in coach. I'm ready. I can do this stewardship. I can do this. Um, And then we come to mortality. But during that mortal time, we have opportunities. Some are formal, like when I get a mission call or a certain calling where I can say, okay, here am I, send me. Some of them, you won't even realize in the process. You will be inadvertently serving and helping the Lord's work without even knowing it. But because you've been sanctified, because you're living a good life, He can use you as a tool. Um, I love also how he talks about his ministry. It's just, I think it's interesting that from like 10 to 13, basically he learns that this calling he's going to have to be a prophet is not going to be a productive one. 
people aren't going to listen. It, it sounds a lot like Mormon and Moroni. They, they know how things are going to shake out, but they're going to speak with power and truth anyway. It feels like a parent to me. There's, I don't know how things are going to shake out for my kids, but I know my job. In fact, that's one of the things I learned from Isaiah is that you can tell that he's not teaching the people in order to please the people or even out of just love for the people. His first love is to God. So he'll do whatever God needs him to do. And then because he loves God, he experiences love for the people. That's what I feel like as a parent. The tighter I get with my connection to my Father in heaven and understanding my Savior Jesus Christ, the more love I feel for the people he has put in my care. And that's what happens with Isaiah's call. And you kind of see that put to the test around chapter 7. So this is when he learns that there's going to be an alliance of sorts. You can get into the history. There's a lot more in the notes if you want to go more. Here's my very short synopsis. Essentially, northern Israel and Syria are forming an alliance because they're afraid of Assyria, this bigger—remember, we're going back to like Second Kings time. Assyria is this wicked, bloodthirsty, kind of like Lamanites in the worst parts of the Book of Mormon group, and they're big, and they're conquering everything in their path. So these two, Assyria and northern Israel, are trying to combine forces to fight against Assyria that's coming. In the process, they ask Judah to join. Judah's in the south, and they say to the king of Judah, Ahaz, like, come and be a part of our little confederacy, our little alliance, so that we have some hope of fighting the big Assyrians. And this is when Isaiah steps in. He's basically giving guidance to King Ahaz, saying, don't form an alliance. The only alliance we should form is with God. Every time, all the time, form an alliance with God. Sadly, it doesn't work out very well. Like we mentioned, none of Isaiah's prophecies get picked up by people in his time. So he speaks to the king, he teaches the king, but the king doesn't really listen. But you see guidance about that in chapter 7. That's what he's trying to say. He even does this interesting thing. So he says to King Ahaz, if you don't know this, if you don't believe this, ask for a sign. I thought this was really fascinating because of what we know in the Book of Mormon where they warn us against asking for signs, you know, like Korahor and all that stuff. Why would he tell him to ask for a sign? And then I was listening to President Nelson, and he does this all the time. <laughs> he basically said in his last talk, watch for and expect miracles. Miracles are signs, right? It's a way to say, big, bold light, yes, the Lord is here, and this is his work. When you are coming to the Lord in a position of faith, and I'm ready to do this, please help me. He will give you a sign. I've seen this in prayer so many times. When I have to make big decisions or Jason and I are praying about his health and we have big worries on the table, we say to the Lord, please help us know for sure <laughs> this is the right decision. We're going to move forward no matter what, but please give us a sign that we're on the right track. And he does. It doesn't always come the way I expect it. It doesn't always come in the time frame I expect it. But the Lord loves to give signs to those who are willing to carry on the work. So don't be afraid to ask for signs when you need them. The sign that Ahaz's promise is that there will be this virgin who will have a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel. So this is when you start to hear, you know, Christmas songs in your head. But he, this has multiple fulfillments. So the Lord won't come for another like 700 plus years. So it's not just I mean, obviously, Ahaz will not see the birth of Jesus Christ, but there will be multiple fulfillments, both in like, you know, Hezekiah will be born, and that could have been a fulfillment. Isaiah has a son, and it could be his fulfillment. There's a whole bunch of theories. So go read some more if you want to learn more about it. But the trump card, the most important, is that this is a prophecy about the Savior who will come, that that will be a sign that this time period where the Lord's going to step in and help and save is on the horizon. They just have to hold out their hope. 
So that happens. God with us, right? That's the meaning behind Emmanuel. So some other things you're going to see as you go on this verse is, is the warning about this desolate valley that will come. There's going to be a time of desolation. And then there's a promise. So when you fast forward into chapter 8, you'll see that the prophet Isaiah has a son with his wife, and they give them a specific name. I'm not even going to try and pronounce. But all the names of Isaiah's sons have meaning. They're part of the prophecy. What I thought was so cool about that is, I really think this is how our callings work today. When you receive a calling, your whole family sort of gets that calling. You might not have, it's not the same, but you know, I felt this way when Jason was bishop for years, that our whole family was supporting that calling. He had the keys and he had the responsibility, but our job was to be a part of his calling. Right now, I'm the YSA Institute teacher in our stake, so he supports me. He comes and does my Zoom calls and all. That's just how it works. So I love that you see that in Isaiah's family as well. And then he warns about these two waters. The first one is the waters of Shiloh. It's this, it's what Hezekiah's tunnel is going to be built around. It's this idea of there's this natural spring that kind of bubbles up into Jerusalem, which makes it a good city to live in because it's got a safe water source. And he's offering that as their nourishment. And what the Jews are going to choose instead is the Euphrates, this big, heavy river that has a tendency to overflow its banks and be wild and that's what Isaiah is talking about in this chapter. He's inviting them to choose the soft spring. Remember, we just studied natural spring, so I love this the tie together between them. Um, and he's inviting them to choose the good, but he knows they won't pick it. They're going to choose to go with Assyria instead. Ahaz will choose it over and over again. Um, in fact, eventually Ahaz will choose to make an alliance with the big Assyrians, and it will be to the downfall of everybody that that's how that happens. But I love that the warnings about it. At the end of chapter 8, you'll see, like around 14, that Christ will be a stone of stumbling, a rock for offense. Many times you're going to see this kind of conflict of the Savior is a help and He is a stumbling block. Again, His light is warm and radiant and intended for good. But if you just come out of a dark movie theater, it's going to burn your eyes a little. <laughs> and that's what you're going to see in the verses. I love how it ends in 20 where it says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. He's referring to the magicians and things that they're turning to for guidance. But I, I think it's this warning to us. All the other sources that you choose, no matter what those sources are, if it's not from the true source of light and knowledge, it's insufficient there's no light in them, and he doesn't want them to turn to those sources. So, there's big warnings at the end of chapter 8. You can always count on Isaiah for finding something we can hope in, and in chapter 9, you get a feel for it. That there is a great light coming, and he's speaking about the Messiah. This is where you get Handel's Messiah's lines come out of chapter 9. He says in verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they shall dwell in the shadow of death. Upon them has this light shined. He talks about what will happen. If you look in verse 4, that a yoke will be broken, the bondage will end, the rod of the oppressor will be taken away. And you can start to see how the Jews in Jesus' time expected a conqueror. They were under the thumb of Rome when Jesus came to the earth, and they expected someone who would liberate them from this captor. And Jesus didn't do that. In fact, he said that to them, to his disciples who were following him. He said, I came to relieve you of sin and death, not the Romans. And some of his disciples said, then why are we following you? You must not be the Savior. And I, here's why I think that's powerful. I listened to someone teach this once, and for the life of me, I can't find the reference. But they invited me to find out what my Romans are. 
um, it's something that you're so fixated on the Lord fixing for you that you sometimes miss other bigger miracles. So I can get in this mindset about Jason's cancer sometimes. Um, his pancreatic cancer can be something that I fixate so much on the Lord fixing for me that I miss the 800 miracles he has put into my life to help me navigate Jason's cancer, help our family navigate his cancer. I, I If I only expect the Lord to come and take away that Roman, that if I just want a cure and that's all I will accept, then I'm missing the real miracles. Maybe he didn't come to deliver me from that trouble. Maybe he came to deliver me from every other one. And I just, I thought it was worth pondering as you read these. What I love about it is it feeds right into the verses from Handel's Messiah. Six, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And then he gives him four names, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. Isaiah is trying to teach us the character of Jesus Christ and to teach the people in his day what to watch for, that he wasn't going to be this mighty conqueror. He's going to be a prince of peace. He's going to be a counselor, someone who is warm and intimate and close to you. So that this is why I wonder if when Nevi read these words, if he was like, yes, that's what I wish I could have said. You know, if you've seen the Lord and you've seen his countenance and you know what he looks like, to try and articulate that must have been so difficult. And I wonder if Nephi just rejoiced to hear somebody put some words to it and that they're so succinct is powerful. It, it, it gets a little deeper. He says, the Lord sent a word unto Jacob and it hath lighted upon Israel. Jesus Christ is the word. So when he is brought forth and given to Israel, a light burst forth. Um, but the people don't Listen, it's in 13, the peoples turneth not unto him, and they that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. They talk about the leadership of the people that was going astray, and that there is this darkening that happens in the land. In fact, in 18, it's called a fire. That's the verse that brought about that forest fire reference. Isaiah promised there would be a burning, and now it's here, so the land becomes dark. When you flip the page, you see that things get ugly. Um, when there is devastation, there is social chaos, and that's kind of what's happening. And then you have this key phrase at the end of verse 21 where it says, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now, we can tend to read that phrase and think, he's always merciful, his hand is always beckoning, and that's accurate. But you can't dissect that from what happens before where he says his anger is not, <laughs> his anger is turned away. He's saying, he if you are choosing to turn to him, his hand is one of beckoning and warmth and friendship. If you are choosing to rebel against that offering, his hand is stretched out still in consequence. It will dole out the punishments that he's promised are coming. It's both. The Lord's hand is both, and we can't just paint him one way. You need to see him both ways. When you go into 10, it gets a little deeper. Well, this is where Isaiah basically says, you're going to get to a point where you're going to say, I need help. <laughs> if you stay in the forest after the rangers have said, we're doing a controlled burn here, you, you're going to get to a point where you want help because uh, there's no way out. And he says, it, it'll be too late. You won't be able to salvage what you hope because the Assyrians are coming. So that mighty force is going to come. In fact, they're going to be a tool in the hand of the Lord to uh, allow this consequence to happen for the Jews. They're going to get conquered. Syria, northern Israel, they're all going to get conquered. Eventually, they'll conquer most of Judah, except for that one holdout in Jerusalem. Remember, that's where we learned about Hezekiah was he, everything else had been conquered and he was just trying to hold on to the holy city. So, that's what he's trying to prophesy about. And then he talks a little bit about 
what those in Zion can expect if they stay stalwart. There's hope. So go to like 24, 25, 26. This is where he teaches them that this scourging is only going to happen for a little while. And then if you change, things will shift. Hezekiah, who's the son of this wicked King Ahaz, is righteous. Josiah comes next and he's righteous. There's hope for Israel. And that's what Isaiah is promising about. I love that he uses the examples of Midian because that's Gideon. Remember Gideon who fought with like lamps and 300 men and the Red Sea parting. They're these weird miracles that don't involve a lot of bloodshed. That's, that's, that's what he uses as a reference point. And I kind of love that that's the power of it. Okay, let's go to 11 and 12 next. Above my margins in 11 and 12, I have let God prevail <laughs> in big letters. That's the message of 11 and 12, that after this burning, after this dark burning of this forest, there will be new growth. And the new growth is magnificent. In fact, it's a marvelous work and a wonder. That's what you see in 11. There is a stem of Jesse that will come forth. If you've ever seen a chopped down tree trunk that has like a new shoot that grows out of it, that's what they're trying to describe. It's what seemed to be dead will come again. This throne of David that seems to have been cut off, a new shoot will grow out of it and it will become this mighty oak. Um, and you'll read about it, what he'll do. This that, That's a representation of the Savior himself and that he will come and he'll judge righteously. He'll protect the poor. All those things that have been lacking will be restored and fixed because this, you know, stem of Jesse comes forth. He talks about how he'll judge. He talks about, there's a lot of references to animals. If you've ever heard the references about these, you know, predator and prey animals who will be together. This isn't just you know, literally animals like this will be able to stay together. It also represents those in the world, warring nations that have hated each other for generations will be together in peace because they'll find a common something to believe in. It, it's not that their differences all go away. It's that they all look to the Savior as their king. And when you have that central focus, all other differences can kind of fall by the wayside. That's the promise that you'll see in the millennial day, that there will be peace because we're so focused on the King of Kings. Another prophecy that comes in this chapter is the root of Jesse. So if you've ever seen um, a tree that's dying or that's weakening, oftentimes if you look around it, you'll see these shoots. They're called root sprouts, I think is what they're called. I put it in the notes. I was studying about this this week in my botanical studies on this chapter. And basically what happens is kind of far away from the tree, like within a few feet or so, you'll see a new root sprout up. So it's almost like growth occurred under the ground in the root and then sprouts up out of nowhere. People see these as noxious because in a yard, for example, they come up and right through your grass. But in a forest setting where everything has been burned, having new life shoot up from this root is powerful. That means the tree can thrive and the forest will grow again. This, a lot of times people reference as Joseph Smith, or just the restoration in general, that it is like this, it's almost like the natural spring that we studied in our object lessons. It's that same idea of, of an unexpected place, new growth comes out, and it will be an ensign to the nations. In 12, he shall set up an ensign for the nations, he shall assemble the outcasts of Israel. This is the gathering that President Nelson can't stop talking about, because he's the prophet who is called to do this gathering work, and we're all on his team, in his battalion. So if you look a little further, you can see the miracles that are going to come in order for this gathering to occur. We're seeing it right now in the incredible temple growth and the missions that went on, even though Coben tried to stop them. I love the way it's phrased in 15. He talks about, he compares it to 
the miracle of the Red Sea party, that the Lord will do miracles like that, that there will men will go over dry shod, 11, 16, and there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left. In order for these people to come home, in order for the gathering, for them to physically come home to Jerusalem and also spiritually to turn to their Savior, Jesus Christ, there will be highways made. And these are not highways on the land. These are highways through Red Seas. In my margins, I drew parting ways, <laughs> drew a highway in the middle. That's what he promises, that he will come up with unexpected solutions that will provide a wide berth for his faithful people to come home. And I just love it. And the result of that is what you see in 12. It's the song of praise. This is when we get there, the millennial day. A lot of people believe we'll actually sing these songs of praise. There's two of them in here. The first three verses are one, and the second three verses are another. And they teach me something powerful because of how they're written. The first group of three verses is me-focused. It's what I will do, how I feel, how I will participate in salvation, how I will partake of salvation. It's very individual. And then the second group of three is all about us, how as a congregation we will sing. It felt like a choir to me. When you describe a choir, it's all these individual, unique voices who are coming together and harmonizing to create this reverberating sound that will just ring out. That's the promise. So if you look in one, you were angry with me, thine anger is turned away and thou hast comforted me. No matter how many mistakes I've made, I'm turning to you and you will comfort me. Two, Jehovah is my strength, my song. He's become my salvation. Three, therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the well of salvation. One of the translations I read about well of salvation actually talks about it being a natural spring, that it is something that we get to, it's not dormant, it's something that is flowing and clean and pure and it never stops. That's what we're drawing from. And then I love what you see in four, declare his doings. When you have this witness, you have this testimony, your job is to declare it out and think about it. What are his doings in our day? It's big things like the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the first vision and the priesthood keys being restored. But it's also the small things. It's all the little miracles that I've witnessed in my life that my job is to testify of, to teach that, yes, God is real and living in this big way, and He is real and living in this little way in my life, and let me tell you about it. In fact, I love it so much that let me sing about it. That's what He's asking. There are excellent things to sing about, like you see in 5. And for me, the crux of all of it comes at the very last verse of this week's study, where he promises to be in the midst of thee. Zion is not just a place of beauty and peace and unity. It's a place where God is. So if you haven't read Elder Uchtdorf's talk about God among us, I give you big links in the notes so you can read it. That's the promise. That's what we're seeking for. Zion is a place where we all individually praise God, where we collectively praise God, and where we know Him because He's right there. Don't you just love the sea? I'm telling you, we're going to have a really good five weeks, you guys. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate 
meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.